So yeah, the church has always been around. Uh, Old Testament, there was, a, there was a body of believers, a remnant all the way through the Old Testament that we see that worship the Lord, uh, always had a mediator, always had someone to go before them between them and God so that they may be able to worship the Lord because the Lord desires relationship with us. And then when we move into the book of Acts, into the New Testament, we see here the birth of this New Testament church where the grace of God was poured out abundantly on the people. Salvation was just, I mean, being spread like crazy. The gospel of Jesus was on everybody's lips. I mean, it, this was just a, a wonderful time for the church. It was also a very threatening time for the church. But if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, 32 and following. Acts chapter 4, 32 and following. You can remain seated. Listen to what it says here. And I would like to try to get through 37. I don't think I'll be able to, but I'm going to try. Listen to what it says in in 32 and following. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Amen. Wow. Wow. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me do a a real quick recap of last week. Last week at the end there from from, uh, 23 through 31, we saw a threatened church, if you recall. They were a threatened church. And then they were praying for boldness to keep preaching and sharing and testifying of the resurrection of Christ. They were not praying that their persecutors would be, would be harmed. They were praying that they would have boldness then to go out and to preach the gospel. This is what they were praying. The Lord God Almighty shook the entire place while they were praying. He answered their prayer. The Lord displayed His power. To show them I hear you. To show them I am with you. If you recall, over 8,000 people here now part of the New Testament church. A lot of folks, isn't it? Some would call that a mega church. And Jesus done it in just a couple of days. (laughs) You talk about the power of His grace being poured out abundantly on those that He called. It was poured out. He shook the place where they were at to show His power, to show I am with you. And as we finish chapter 4 this morning, we'll get a little bit 
of a break from the persecution shown to us in the scripture. We're going to get away from that and we're going to look at what the church was doing because up until this moment, this whole chapter has basically been about persecution. Peter and John before the council, now they're breaking free. They've prayed. They were threatened and they've prayed. But now, after power descends upon them, here we have in 32 what's taking place. And it is just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Matter of fact, the description of how beautiful it is comes out of Psalms 133. The unity of the believers. How precious it is. How beautiful it is for brothers to dwell in unity. I've been places where it's not real pleasant. Anybody else? I feel that when we come together as a church here at Grace, I feel that it is pleasant. I feel that there is unity. I feel that there is a singleness of heart. When issues arise, I believe that we take care of them, and I believe we do it fairly quickly to the best of our ability. But I believe one thing that has held this church together and one thing that continues to do so is the unity and the love that the brethren have for each other because they put Christ first. Put Christ first. Listen to what it says in verse 32. Now the full multitude or the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Did you hear that? Man, you can't get... I've got a house where I'm over six people. And it's hard for me to get all of them going in the same direction at one time. By me. Me and Casey and the kids. It's hard for us to get them going at the same, in the same direction at the same time. But here we have a display of God's power. This is not something that's normal. This is something that is supernatural. Remember on when, when Christ Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the donkey? When the crowd just completely descended upon him and all this multitude was gathered around? That was not normal. That was supernatural. What is taking place here is absolutely a work of God. It is a blessing coming down from above this is supernatural God's people coming together under the headship of Christ it's not it is supernatural this is not a normal thing for 8,000 people to come together and for 8,000 people to be in agreement for 8,000 people to be loving and serving and giving and investing all that they have this is not normal it's normal for the church, but not normal for the world. See the difference? The church, I believe, has gotten away from some of this. But before we go any further, we have to understand to be part of this full number, to be part of this multitude that is mentioned, that we are speaking about as to those that have believed. Listen to what it says. Now the full number of those who, what? Believed were of one heart and soul, and no one that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Eight thousand saved souls. Saved by the power of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Over eight thousand. 
We see a move like this taking place that I've been speaking of for the last two weeks in Asbury, Kentucky. Now it's spreading across the the nation and it's also spreading across the globe. There's reports of of Muslims being saved. There's all sorts of reports, different reports coming in. and, And they're not conflicting reports. These are reports is that Jesus saves. This is what the reports are. That people are coming together because Jesus saves across all different denominations. Jesus is being looked to. God is moving. And only He can do that. More than 8,000 at this one moment in time is, is no small feat at all. It is amazing. It is wonderful. But yet when you have 8,000 people over that and many, many more, you have that many people to contend with, right? <laughs> You ever heard people say, well, I just don't like people. I don't like being around them. Well, I'm sorry. That's what, that's what the church is. It's people. Called out people. Called to, to worship the Lord. And to spend time with one another. If you want to be a hermit, I, I just don't see that in Scripture. We are called to be together for a reason. Verse 32, it says, Those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were knit together with cords of love. This is what brings people together is the love of Christ. We see this blood cord all the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is the blood of Christ that knits us together. And this is a huge contrast to what we saw in the previous verses back. Just a couple of verses. Go back up with me to, uh, or go back with me if you can, to 25, 20, and 26. You have a display of it, how awful it is, this contrast in 27. But let's listen to what 25 and 26 says. And this also goes back to Psalms chapter 2. We've talked about this. But this is a, a huge contrast, contrast to those mentioned back in 25 and 26. Listen to what it says. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? That doesn't sound like people that are uh, loving one another, does it? No. And the people's plot in vain. Does that sound like love? No. The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers were gathered together. Does that sound like something good is fixing to happen? Nope. It says against the Lord and against his anointed. Do we see the contrast between the early church and the world? The early church and the old, even the Old Testament church, they were of one mind, of one accord, but you see the world here and you say that there's a togetherness there as well, but their togetherness is far different than the love that we have. It is far different than what we have as a church and what the New Testament church has. We come together by love. They come together, come together by evil passions, lusts, and desires because they're scared somebody's going to take their position. And we have to understand as a church, as this body, that we have to come together and we have to do it by the love of Christ. You see that difference there. Does everybody see the difference? In 25 and 26 verses 32 through 37, we have to see the difference because it is there. 
You cannot deny it. It is there. Let's move on. One group will be hated. That's the Christians, by the way. I don't know if y'all got that. One group will be hated, persecuted, and die to themselves daily in order that they may gain Christ. That's one group. You mean that we have to die daily to gain Christ? Yeah, that's what the Bible teaches us. You mean we have to give up ourselves and give up what we want and our desires and our passions and all the things that we could ever desire to have? Yeah, that's what it means. To deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow Jesus. These are the ones that make up the church. One group will be hated, persecuted, and die to themselves daily to gain Christ, while the other group will live for themselves. Never bowing the knee to Christ. They will one day. Never speaking the name of Christ, but they will one day. And so we have to understand this stark contrast between the two, the world and the church. The world and the church. These are those without restraint, the part of the world. These are those that are without restraint. What we just learned in Philippians last Wednesday night, whose God is their belly. They got the belly God. Whose God is their belly, whose end is destruction. By the way, that they, they, follow, they follow also false prophets and all these false teachers and all these other things too that are empty clouds just going from here to there who have a special spot in hell as well. And so we have to understand what part of the coin, what part, what part are we on? Are we with the Lord or are we not? So here the church was together. The church was together in this instance. In, in Scripture... In Acts chapter 2, remember on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God fell. In Acts chapter 2, 42 through 46, the believers were together. When they were saved, they were together. What is something that we are beginning to see unfold before us? It's hard to be a church if you're not... Y'all got it, right? It's hard to be a church if you're not together. If you're not together. As a matter of fact, the first uh, several thousand that were saved in the book of Acts in chapter 2, and what happened following after that is an awful lot like what happens here in Acts chapter 4, 32 through 37. They were eating together, worshiping the Lord together, selling their stuff, giving, uh, taking the Lord's Supper. They were doing all of these things, but they were together. And they came together because they loved Christ. The lover of their souls. For the apostles' teaching and for the apostles' preaching to take effect... It has to be received, right? Well, how can that happen if you're not together? You see where I'm going with this? For them to be edified and receive instruction, they had to be together. They worshiped together. Encouraged each other together. 
They ate together. Not only did they partake of the Lord's Supper together, but they also ate from house to house. They spent time with one another, a lot of time, mind you. They gave to each other. And they loved on each other. And they did not do that separately. They did that together. I long for the day when we can come to church and we're not worried about when we get out or what time we have to be back or when we have to go to bed. I long for the day when we can come to church, when we, come, we can come to this building or gather together and truly sit around and enjoy each other's company instead of checking off a box. I told Casey this the other day, and I've told the church this. I truly enjoy your company. Like, I enjoy all of your company. I enjoy it. By the way, if you want us to come over, we've got a big crew. Please invite us, and we'll come over. But we're not showing up uninvited, I promise you that. You understand what I'm telling you? We never got asked anywhere when I was a kid because there were six of us and my mom and daddy and people just didn't want to commit to feeding eight folks. So if you want us over, ask us to come over. Understand? But it's about this being together and understanding that Jesus died for us. That we should be able to come together and truly love on one another and not worry about what time we got to get this done and these, these ball games and these, this junk. Just enjoy each other's company. Because Jesus is in our midst when we do. Why would we neglect that? He says we're two or more gathered. There he is and he's dwelling and he's ruling and reigning and, and among them. Why would we neglect that? And so here, there is a togetherness, and I want you to pay careful attention to it. To the gathering together of saints. When this happens, when the church is single in heart, and what I mean by that is when they're in single in heart, when they're together, when they're in one accord with each other, when they're in agreement in heart and soul together, the Spirit of God moves. And he moves with great power. And we see this through the book of Acts. We see this in the Gospels. We see this in Paul's letters. We see the Spirit of God moving with great power. But this is with selfless people. Selfless people. Not selfish people. Selfless. People that are Dying to themselves. People that are putting other needs of others before themselves. And this is where unity comes in at. They worked as a unit. As one person. As one bride as the church should be. How many brides does Jesus have? Let me just ask you that. Boy, it would be contradictory for him to say that he had more than one, wouldn't it? How many brides does Jesus have? One. 
One bride. Joined by His love, by His blood. One bride. Not two. Not a thousand. He's got one. And that one bride should act like it. Should act like it. It would be crazy to think that our Savior would have more than one bride. That would go against all Scripture. No. That's deplorable even think. He has one bride. We are brought together by His love. By His blood. Over 8,000 people dwelt together in unity. In unity. That is absolutely amazing. Verse 32. And no one said that of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Now, now when we say this, this is not a free ticket for you to go and borrow anything that your neighbor has. <laughs> we got to understand this is not about that. This is not about that. I borrow Shelton's trailer. Shelton parks it over here at the house. But it has nothing to do with, with this right here, okay? I, I, want you to, I want to make this very, very clear. This is not a reason, just because we see this in verse 32, this is not a reason to go to your church members and say, I need this and I need that, and you're supposed to give it to me because the early church did. Uh-uh. It ain't, that ain't how it works. What is happening in the New Testament church here in this passage of Scripture is it was all about taking care of one another so that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be promoted to the four corners of the globe. They needed the money. They needed the help. All these people were coming together, converging on one place to worship the Lord and then being sent out. They needed this. And I'm not saying that we're not to do this now. For heaven's sake, we know that we are. We're to give when, 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 we're, when we are asked, but we're not to take advantage of that either. We're not. And it truly is a beautiful thing, and I'm going I'm to read this passage I'm going to read this passage out of Psalms 133, and I want to talk about it for just a minute to speak about the unity that, that we have here. And I'm just going to get through the first two verses um, because it, the third verse is just another example, and it goes into whole something totally different, or the same thing, but just another illustration. Um, this unity that they had was, was a beautiful, beautiful thing. What would a church give? What would the church give to have unity? Let me, let me give you the answer to that. Everything. Our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole mind, our energy, everything that we have. You want unity? You invest in it. You want unity in the church? You invest in the church. I'm not talking about giving me your money. I'm talking about investing in the souls of those that are around you. I'm not worried about money. Jesus owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Just for y'all that don't know what that is, that means all the cows on all the hills. 
But listen to what it says in Psalms 133, 1 and 2. Let's see about this unity for just a moment and how, how beautiful it is. The, the scripture teaches us from, from David here that it's, that it's good and that it's pleasant. Listen to what it says, Psalms 133, 1 and 2. Behold, what is David doing here? He's saying, look at this. Look at how beautiful this is. Look at how gorgeous this is. Behold, take notice of, pay attention to what's coming next. And he says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This psalm can absolutely apply to the church. Even though it applied to David in his time and in his experience at that time in his life, this absolutely applies to the church. The church has been bought with a price by, by, by the blood of Christ, not by something else. We've been bought with a price. We have the Father, we have the Son, we have the Holy Spirit unified as one triune God. Yes or no? He is our Master, He is our Savior, and He is our Comforter. And He is one. All the more reason we should love as brethren Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Just as they harmonize and they are one, so should we. Ephesians 4 and 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Not talking about in every soul on the planet, talking about the church and in all. Hebrews 13 and 1, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. The scripture teaches us in Psalms 133 that this unity or this get togetherness is good and it is pleasant. It's good and it's pleasant. Look at Psalms 133 and 2. Now, when we start using these words, good and pleasant, we have to think about who? That's right. There's only one that's good. We have to think about who? We have to think about Christ. We have to think about the one that is pleasant, the one that's the chiefest among 10,000. The love of our souls, the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. We have to think about the one that is good, the one that is pleasant. And that is Jesus. And here in this verse, David brings out something very interesting. He thinks about Aaron. Which has already been dead and gone. At the time David wrote this, but he's thinking about Aaron. And he is going to use Aaron's head, Aaron's head, his hair, and his clothes to show us what unity is. Talk about weird Man, a person that can't spiritually discern or doesn't know anything about this, man, this is, this is weird. Verse 2, it's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. When I hear this and when my wife hears this, she's like, gross. I grew a beard one time and I had to put oil on it. I had to put conditioner on it to make it soft. 
to make it smell good because it stank. She said, it's nasty. Don't do that. But here, David is comparing the unity of brethren to something that is like this. So we have to understand it. Listen to what it says. Aaron mentioned here was a high priest. Listen to what it says. 133.2, it is like the precious oil on the head. On the head of Aaron, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down onto the collar of his robes. Now his collar was woven, seamless, one piece. This is important that you understand this. This is what the high priest wore when he was anointed. One solid piece, one linen garment, and its neck hole was woven, and it was sewed. It was one piece. Remember when Jesus died on the cross? It says, and they parted his garments, and they took, the, they took, his, they took his, his uh, I forget what they call it, his, his vesture off, or his, his garment off, and it says it was woven from the top throughout, one solid piece. Well, this is what we have going on. This is what Aaron's robe was. So when it says collars, it's talking about the very top right here. The neck hole. He put the one robe on and the oil came down off of his head onto his beard and it dripped right down to here onto his collar. Now, for Gentiles, this means nothing to us. But for a Jew, this means everything to us because it means that God chose this man to be a mediator between him and his people. That means he has anointed him and set him apart and sanctified him, made him clean so that he can mediate and intercede between himself and his people. It means this man is something special. This man is the one that can go into the Holy of Holies. And mediate. To bring the sacrifice and mediate on behalf of the people. So Christ Jesus is our high priest. Just as Aaron was the high priest. You see this this picture of Aaron was all about a picture of Christ. And what comes with with Christ being our head. This unity that comes with being Christ being our head. Listen to, what, listen to this. Aaron mentioned here was a high priest at one time, head over the Old Testament worship, who served as that mediator between God and between man, wearing that robe, wearing that seamless garment. So Christ Jesus is our high priest, our mediator over the church. As the head of the church, between God and man. Just as Aaron, listen to me and pay attention. Just as Aaron was anointed with oil to serve as high priest, this oil was a picture of the spirit of grace poured out in abundance on Christ Jesus when he became the head of the church. Do we understand that? 
This oil was sweet smelling. It was precious and it was pleasant. It dripped down from the top of Aaron's head to his beard and then onto his robes. And let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. The same thing has happened with the Lord Jesus Christ. That spirit of grace that was poured abundantly upon him, it was poured out on his head and it came down from his head and it dripped down to the other extremities of his body, which is the church. The robe, the collars, that's what it's representing. And so it's beautiful because it's a beautiful picture of Christ and us falling in line with Jesus. Us falling in line with him. As this oil dripped down the head of Aaron, it went onto his whole seamless collared robe, which represents the believer's. And the reason why this collared robe was so important is because it was whole. It's perfect. And that's exactly what the church is supposed to look like. We're supposed to fall in line under the headship of Christ. Anointed by the grace of God. Saved by His power and by His grace alone. Through faith. That oil comes down on that robe, on that collar. And it spills out and it spills out over onto the church. And there's a unity there. It descends from the head of the church, which is Christ, to the saints of God. We see this unity first in the triune God, do we not? We see it all the way back there in Genesis 1. We see this unity in in this creation account. All the way back in Genesis 1. And we see this unity throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament. And then second, we see it from there, we see it there, we see it descend by Christ to the church, which should be in perfect harmony. So you have the, the, the triune God that's in perfect harmony. And then you have Christ, which is the head of the church, over one, one body, which is the church. And we're walking in the same direction with him being in charge. You see that harmony, that unity there. And then third, we should see it from ourselves to each other. You see that? From the triune God to Christ to the church, from the church to each other. Why do you reckon that is? John 17 tells us very clearly why that is in verse 20 and 21. Very clearly. I do not ask for these only. This is the true Lord's Prayer where Jesus is praying before the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one. He's talking Jew and Gentile that we would all be one. His flesh endured the cruel crucifixion so that we could have eternal life and so that the middle wall of partition could be torn down, bringing, canceling out that enmity between the two so that we could be one body, Jew and Gentile. Gentiles being grafted in perfectly. One. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. You see the Trinity there? You see it working like I said earlier? That they also may be in us, falling in line under that headship. So that the world may believe, here it goes, pay attention. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. What's the purpose of unity in the church? To promote the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. If the church can't get along, what are we doing? The whole purpose. Just as Christ gave everything for us to be with Him, the church should fully invest in the unity, endeavoring to keep the unity and the spirit and the bond of peace. Church, we should strive. If we're going to strive with one another, let us strive with one another to be unified. And I truly believe that we are. But we can't stop that. We have to continue to press on in that. We should strive to be unified because we are a direct representation of Jesus to the world. Do we understand that? So that the world may believe that Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, is the Messiah. And so I got through one verse today. What's the purpose of it? The one verse, Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And I'm going to have to stop.